Very good morning, Amokyo family. It's uh, truly good once again to be gathered as God's people to give praise and worship to our God. Uh, we rejoice. There's uh, no more registration needed. You can just come uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, we just still have, uh, the government has still set the requirement for full vaccination status though. Uh, for those of you who knew that I came down with uh, COVID-19, uh, thank you so much for your prayers and concerns. <coughs> as you can hear... <coughs> Although I'm classified uh, mild, right, by MOH standards, in the sense I didn't go to hospital or anything like that, that's considered mild. Right? At home, you're considered mild. But actually, I was quite plagued uh, with quite bad symptoms. Uh, day three, one to three were actually quite bad for me. And then the symptoms lingered until last Sunday, I was still on day nine, testing positive. So you didn't see me for two Sundays. <coughs> and uh, <coughs> so I still continue to uh, ask for your press for full recovery. But one song that the Lord used to comfort me during this audio, especially the first three days, was the song by Chris Tomlin, Whom Shall I Fear? In particular, there was this one line, the, the Lord of Angel Armies is always by my side. I don't know why that lyrics you know, just kept coming to my, head, uh, to my head at those three days. But truly, I know God is uh, always by our side, not just by my side, but by your side too, because He is a faithful covenantal God. Uh, thanks, Pastor Lee, also, for agreeing to swap with me uh, for the pulpit last Sunday. Right. Uh, thanks so much for that and for the team really for holding the fort as I recuperated. So today we continue on the Genesis Sermon series and we will explore this theme of covenantal faithfulness, how God is faithful. And before we read the scripture text, I want to acknowledge today's sermon title comes from a podcast that I was listening to, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. And so I think these terms, loving loyalty and believing loyalty, these terms are from his podcast. The best capture for us what it means to be a people in covenant with God. What does it mean for us to be in covenant with God? So the title comes from his podcast, but most of his, uh, the content isn't. You can go and listen it to yourself. But I still want to give him credit for this uh, sermon title inspiration. So let's turn back to Genesis chapter 15. If you don't already know, we're not going a chronological series uh, through the book of Genesis, but we're covering theme by themes. And so this season, we're covering the idea of covenantal faithfulness. Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in the vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham, I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give to me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood, he will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. So Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Earl of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
<coughs> in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, Canaanites, so and so forth, except the mosquito bites. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Except the last part, of course, that's not the word of the Lord, but we give thanks for the word of God. <clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word once again. <clears throat> Lord, we pray and ask Holy Spirit, you reveal how covenantally faithful you are and teach us what it means to love you and to believe you with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today's sermon really is more like a teaching sermon because I need to explain to all of us what it means to cut a covenant in the ancient Near East context. How the people in the ancient Near East make covenants with each other. But first, we need to know that covenants are very serious affairs. Matters of literally life and death. These are not that matters that you simply go into frivolously. So while there are contracts, to some extent you can see them as contracts, one major difference is that covenants are binding for life. They are binding for life. In an ordinary legal contract, for example, once the terms are fulfilled, you can end the contract. But for covenants, the terms last forever. In terms of scope also, there's a big difference. Covenants co cover all aspects of one's life, not just a certain portion. You know, you make a contract maybe with a businessman to fulfill a particular dimension of your life. But for covenants, it's all of your life. In fact, the ancient covenants involve families and communities, and it may even last multiple generations. So according to the book, The Great Exchange, Bound by Blood, by Dr. Robert and K. Kamenish, there are seven exchanges which take place in the ancient covenant making. Seven exchanges. And by the way, you will see later on, the Hebrew expression for making a covenant is literally cut a covenant. So if you look at the Hebrew text, they will say cut a covenant. Of course, in our English, we won't see that because it's awkward. How can you cut a covenant? But you understand it uh, later on, why they use the phrase cut a covenant. But even in our English language, we still see some residual phrases, such as cut a deal or strike a bargain, to get you this idea, right, of life and death involved in covenant making. So let's return now to the seven exchanges that were part of the ancient ritual of cutting a blood covenant. As you go through this, as we go through these details, you might notice you know, certain similar practices, uh, even in secret societies, as depicted in many movies. And certainly, you will see all these seven elements in Abraham's covenant cut with God. So, exchange number one. In the old uh, ancient Near East, in the exchange of in the making a covenant, first of all, there was an exchange of weapons. So, the two parties will face each other and then exchange their weapons. <clears throat> As they exchange their trade, their weapons, they're making a promise to each other that I will protect you, I will go out to war, if you are at war, I will go out and defend you. I will be there for you, if anyone attacks you, I will hunt him down and even take revenge at the cost of my own life. So that's the first thing, that's the exchange of weapons. <coughs> In Abraham's case, God told Abraham not to be afraid. And what was the, the imagery of a weapon that God used? He says, God says, I will be your shield. You're thinking of a sword maybe, right? But a shield is also a weapon, right? And so God says to Abraham, I will be your shield. He will be, uh, <coughs> God will be Abraham's defense. Notice here that Abraham really didn't exchange anything with God. And so that really kind of already points towards the shape of the covenant 
that is in the making. And then secondly, there was an exchange of cloaks, what they wear. So the exchange of cloaks represents an exchange of possessions. Really, it's the promise of provision. And what did God promise Abraham? I will be your very great reward. So that's what God promised Abraham. In the past, when they made this covenant and exchanged their cloaks, basically they were saying, everything I have is now yours. They will care and provide for one another's flocks, servants, so and so forth. Only thing that is not shared is their wife. Okay? And so that's what God promised to Abraham. I will be your exceedingly great reward. And again, notice this is one-sided. But because Abraham knew that covenant lasted multiple generations, he asked then, asked God a very legitimate question. Okay, God, since this covenant is between you and me and my generations, look, I have no heir. Who is going to inherit all these covenantal promises? That's why he asked, I only have this Eliezer, my servant. Is he the one? And so God says, no, that's a valid question. I will provide for you an offspring. In fact, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars. And so the scripture says, Abraham believed God, and the scripture records, righteousness was credited to him, to Abraham. So let me make the key point for today's sermon here. While we can see that the covenant cut between Abraham and God is largely one-sided, by these first two exchanges, you can see that it's already one-sided, there is one fundamental expectation to be fulfilled on Abraham's part, on humans' part, and that is to keep on believing. Have to keep on believing in God's promises and covenant. One of the words used to describe God's nature and dealings with His covenantal people, that is us included, is the Hebrew word chesed. Hesed. Can you repeat with me? Hesed. Hesed. That is the Hebrew word used to translate uh, often in our Bibles, steadfast love or loving kindness. Right? But more and more scholars agree that the word now actually is better translated as loyalty. Loyalty best translates this Hebrew word hesed. If you look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, the word hesed is often paired with the Hebrew word emet, which means faithfulness. Faithfulness. And so, in Hebrew, especially in poetic literature, they like to think in terms of couplets or synonyms. And sometimes scholars call it parallelism in poetic literature. So, in other words, these two terms often go hand in hand. They are like two sides of a coin. And that's why loyalty is a better translation for hesed rather than, you know, loving kindness. Because loyalty and faithfulness, they go hand in hand. Think of a marriage covenant. You must be loyal and faithful, right? You don't really see a big difference between them, but that's why this uh, translation is better. So God is 100% loyal, 100% faithful to his covenant. What is required on part, therefore, is not just so-called our loyalty, but in more specific terms, loving loyalty, and believing loyalty. Loving loyalty and believing loyalty. Our loving loyalty can be seen in the greatest command, what did God command Moses to teach us? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Loving loyalty. You must love God. But there's also this aspect of believing loyalty, like Abraham did, to believe God and His Word, to believe His promises. Now notice here, righteousness was given to Abraham even before the rest of the covenant was finished, enacted. And for me, I think that's pretty significant. <clears throat> that is why Apostle Paul, on his close reading of Scripture and his thorough understanding of the Old Testament, understood that salvation is first and foremost a matter of faith and not of circumcision. First and foremost, a matter of faith. Abraham simply believed God 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's why we Gentiles don't need to be circumcised as well in order you know, to be part of the covenant people of God. In fact, I propose there are maybe two subparts of this Abrahamic covenant. And the first part ends here at verse 6. The first part of the covenant deals with faith, believing in God, and Abraham's offspring, all of us who are part of Abraham's offspring by faith. The second part of the covenant, I believe, is tied more to the promised land. And it took place only in response to Abraham's question. How do I know I will inherit the land? So Abraham had two questions. First of all, how do I know who's going to inherit all this? Right? And God says, I will provide an offspring. Abraham believed it and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's part one. Part two, then he asked, where is the, the promise of the land? Right? So, <clears throat> so this promise of the land is then tied to more to the ritual of circumcision as we shall soon see. And perhaps this is also why the early church did not require Gentiles to be circumcised. Because Gentiles are not given the promise to inherit this physical land of Israel. And really, there's no need to do so because for us as Christians, we're not looking forward to a physical inheritance in the land of Israel, but a spiritual inheritance, inheritance from God himself. Now, this need for ongoing believing loyalty is made very explicit in John's Gospel. In John chapter 20, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See so many times, right? It's repeated, this word. It's still ongoing. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believing loyalty is so important. Our theme verse for this year is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. While much of the covenant really is indeed fulfilled by God, so that salvation is not by works, huh? let me say very clearly, believing is not by works. Believing is faith. It is not by works that we are saved, yet we are expected to continually express believing loyalty towards God. To express believing loyalty towards God, for example, means <clears throat> having no other idols or gods in our lives. <clears throat> for most of us Christians, you think, ah, yeah, of course not, I don't have, right? But you know, I've ever heard of Christians <clears throat> consulting <clears throat> feng shui masters when they shift house. Christians are huh? consulting feng shui masters. I'm thinking to myself, how can this be? If God really is our shield and our reward, do we need to consult Feng Shui Masters to defend ourselves from evil spirit, to have a certain flow of blessing in our lives? That's what the Feng Shui Masters, right, are getting us to arrange a house in a certain way to get that blessing, to get that protection. But for us, who is our blessing? Who is our protection? It is God. Well, this is also why we Christians don't consult horoscopes, zodiacs, or almanacs 
for a good day to shift house, get married, and so on and so forth. Why? Because God is our shield and our reward. We don't need anything else but God Himself. We trust God to provide and to defend all our needs and provide for all our needs. So when we trust God, that means also then we must obey Him. We must obey Him. Jesus says in John 15, 9-13, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. So that's believing loyalty and loving loyalty. Now many times we think said refers primarily to God himself. In fact, we only think of it as referring to God himself. While it is true that this word is mostly used in the context of describing who God is, Scripture does expect us as human beings also to show said. And the best example of this is a very famous verse many of us are familiar with, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O man or O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God, right? We know this verse very well. But in that phrase, love mercy, actually it's hesed. To love loyalty, to demonstrate loyalty. So hesed isn't something that God only he shows it to us unilaterally. But we're expected to show hesed to him and to one another. It is simply an overflowing of our relationship with God, and we are loyal to Him. We will also be loving and loyal to people around us. Now let's come back to the exchange in the Old Testament and the Old Ancient Near East Covenant. The third exchange was the exchange of names. So as they exchanged their weapons, they exchanged their clothes, right? You know, they exchanged names. I will still have my name, but I will add, you know, maybe your last name or your first name or part of your name to my name. And then you will do the same. And so in so doing, they are basically sharing all the obligations, liabilities, and even benefits of carrying that name. So whenever someone was introducing himself, now that you have someone's name tagged along, you are also introducing who is connected to you as your blood brother. So that's the significance of it. So in Abraham's case, this exchange of name is not found in Genesis chapter 15, but in Genesis chapter 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, Abraham, you know, God came and confirmed his covenant with him, and God changed his name from Abraham to Abraham. What is added is the letter H. The letter H is added to God's uh, to Abraham's name. <clears throat> and where did this letter H come from? In Hebrew, God's name <clears throat> is found in these consonantal letters. Y H W H. Y-H-W-H, that's the Hebrew consonant uh, for God's name. While scholars have added vowels to pronounce it either as Jehovah, which is the older scholarship, or Yahweh, the newer scholarship, uh, in the very original Hebrew text, actually there's no vowel at all. And so Y-H-W-H, how would you try to pronounce it? And so some people, I think quite brilliantly, have suggested Y-H mimics the sound of inhalation. While well, WH uh, mimics the sound of exhalation, right? Right? The breath of God. Remember when God created Adam, what he did? He breathed his breath into Adam. So, anyway, so these are the two letters, uh, the, let, the four letters of God's name, YHWH, and the letter H, which is repeated twice, gets absorbed into Abraham's name. And same for Sarah too, Sarai. 
Her name is therefore changed from Sarai to Sarah, the letter H included. Now, then, you say this is an exchange. So how did God take on Abraham's name? We actually know this. He's known therefore as the God of Abraham, of Jacob, and of Isaac. He took on their names. He's the covenantal God. Then there is also the exchange of blood. That's the fourth exchange. <clears throat> Without the release of blood, it's not considered a blood covenant, right? Otherwise, how can it be a blood covenant? So to sign in blood, really, is to sign in life and death. I think many of us have seen those Chinese secret society movies, right? Or maybe it used to be, I don't know, but it's okay. <clears throat> so we know this quite well. They'll cut their fingers, right? And then they'll drip their blood into this common bowl. And then you see the blood mingle. Actually, I don't know whether it will mingle or not. I don't know movie real or not. So, but the cutting of blood is real, right? And so this blood covenant really is more than agreement or promise. It was really this joining of two, two lives into one. That's the idea of the co-mingling of blood is to join their lives together because blood, as we know, symbolizes life. Without blood, there is no life at all. So when Abraham asked God, uh, no, yeah, asked how he would receive this land, God promised, God instructed Abraham, as you can see in Genesis 15 verse 9, to prepare animals by dividing them and then cutting them and putting their opposite, parts opposite of each other. And so this splitting of animals into half is why the Hebrew expression is literally cut a covenant. Because you're cutting the animals and laying them on the two sides. And so when this is done, then there's the fifth exchange, the exchange of blessings and curses. The exchange of blessings and curses. And so usually during the cutting of flesh, the men, you know, in the secret societies, they will state their blessings and curses. So sometime ago, I watched this a series of old Hong Kong gangster movies uh, called Election on Netflix. It's in Cantonese. You can, those of you who can understand Cantonese can watch it better, probably appreciate it more. Well, basically, as they were, you know, cutting themselves and making their vows, <clears throat> they will pronounce curses on themselves as they take on the oath of allegiance. And so they will say stuff like, if I betray my brother, may I be struck by lightning, right? If I attack my brothers, may my body be cut into a thousand pieces. You can think of the Chinese uh, phrase in your head. Huh? So similarly, in ancient covenants, the two parties will pronounce blessings and curses as they walk in a figure of eight shape around these carcasses. That's what they're supposed to do. As the, the carcasses laid there, they'll walk in a figure of eight shape and pronounce blessings and curses. If I do this, I'll be blessed. If I do that, I'll be cursed. If I betray you, I'll be cursed, so and so forth. But unlike uh, the usual way in which parties will walk among the carcasses, if you look at Genesis chapter 15, as his story goes, we find out that Abraham falls into a deep sleep. It's not that Abraham was very tired. Huh? <laughs> the same word there, deep sleep, was used when Adam was made by God to fall into a deep sleep to create Eve. Okay, so obviously God is the one who caused Abraham to go into this deep sleep. And so, <clears throat> what's the reason? The reason is very simple. God will undertake the whole covenant on his own. The two parties, so-called, who appear in the scene are the smoking fire pot and the blazing torch. So what you will normally expect is for the two people, right, to do this walk themselves. But what has happened to Abraham? Sleeping. Not his fault. Huh? God made it, do it. To, he did it to him. And so God became himself the two parties in this covenant. And so he will walk and pronounce blessings on curses, so-called on himself, 
if he ever fails to keep this covenant. So most scholars agree that this fired pot, as well as burning torch, correspond to the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, which represents the presence of God in the wilderness. Same words were used. So therefore, it's very clear that God himself was leading not just the Israelites by day and night in the wilderness. He was also involved. The same God involved in Abraham's covenant is the one who is leading them in the wilderness. Fire pot, right? The smoke, the cloud, as well as the blazing fire, the torch, that pillar of fire. So importantly, we need to take note that God himself is the one taking on the full consequences of this covenant. He takes on the full responsibility. The God who revealed himself to Abraham, who told him your descendants will be in, uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years, will be the God who will deliver them. Same presence, smoke and fire in uh, the days of Moses. So God is always true to his word. And this is important theological reason why we must gather for worship. We must gather for worship because every time we gather for worship, we are really reenacting our spiritual deliverance from slavery to sin. It's something that it reminds us of who we are, our identity as the people of God. Every time we gather for worship, we are reminded, hey, I'm coming out of the world. I'm entering into something different, a different setting from my usual setting, whether it's at home or at work. It's a different setting. It's a, the way the church has designed to remind us, look, we are different people. We are no longer the same. So remember, online worship is a concession, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here because you are here, but remind your brothers and sisters, online worship is a concession. It shouldn't become a constant. Right? We are, every time we gather as the body of Christ, it's not just a spiritual discipline. It's important that it reminds us who we are as the people of God. So again, back to Genesis 15, here's the important thing to note. Abraham does not walk through the pieces. It is fully contingent on the Lord to realize the promises and fulfill the terms of the covenant. Notice here also, if you look in Genesis' account, actually Abraham was never cursed by God. Almost never. Except whoever curses you, that person I will curse. Whereas, by the time it comes you know, to Moses' generation, the full list of blessings and curses are made, are listed there. It's as if you know, God knows that Abraham will surely keep the end of his covenant. So no need to curse you. Lah. You surely will be faithful, right? As we have seen in the story of Isaac, when Brother Louis preached, God, uh, Abraham was even willing to sacrifice his beloved son Isaac to believe God, to show that he loves God. But if you look at Deuteronomy, when Moses you know, gave the law again, there were four full chapters of curses and blessings for the, uh, the covenant that is made with the Israelites. That if they were faithful, they will be blessed. If they were unfaithful to the terms of the covenant, they will be cursed. So God wasn't doing something new. It's the ancient practice of those days. And Israel, as we know, they lapsed into apostasy over and over again. They did not demonstrate either loving loyalty or believing loyalty. They failed to do both. And that's why they brought curses upon themselves. Now, number six then, the sixth thing that was exchanged will be a memorial exchange. A blood covenant affected many people. It wasn't just about two individuals, as I mentioned earlier. It also includes their families and their servants for generations. And so in order for the posterity to know, their descendants to know about this covenant, so sometimes they'll raise a large stone with an inscription, right? Because they don't have paper in those days. They put a big stone. Or they could plant a tree in oasis or they can dig a well 
All these things you can see very often in the Old Testament, right? These are the things they will do. And for us, for our covenant of marriage is the ring. So we still practice covenant with symbols, but in a different form, right? So anyway, whatever the symbol or monument was, it will, you have to be something that will last beyond the usual perishable stuff, right? Like a leaf or a flower. And so for Abraham and his descendants, the generational memorial will, be the, will take the shape of circumcision. That is their exchange of memorial. And it involves blood too, because they'll be cutting there, right? And so uh, <clears throat> that is the memorial exchange in Abraham's case. And if you heard me earlier, I believe it pertains only to the specific promise of the land, inheritance of the land. So that's really not applicable to us as Gentiles. Our salvation is by faith alone, and who we are inheriting is God himself. Not so much the land, so we don't have to be circumcised. Hallelujah, right? For the men. Number seven, covenant meal. And this was the, uh, the final part uh, to declare this covenant is made. And so they will have a joyous but solemn celebration. Words of the covenant were spoken. They will take a loaf of bread and say, Take and eat. This, body represents, uh, this bread represents my body. As you eat this, you are taking my body into yourself. They will also take a glass of juice or wine offered to each other and say, Take and drink this. This represents my lifeblood. As you drink it, you are taking me into yourself. Now, surely, most of you by now are thinking, Aha! Eh? That sounds really familiar. And indeed, it is. As it reminds us of the Holy Communion. But let's not jump ahead of ourselves here. And so, really, this was the final meal that they will establish the covenant that truly they will, two of them will become one. They will be, and those present at the meal were witnesses and agreed to hold uh, the two of them uh, who uphold this covenant. Now, if you go back to the Genesis 15 passage, there is no mention of a memorial meal. So how do we make sense of it? There are two possible ways. One is to see Abraham's meal with Melchizedek as the memorial meal because Melchizedek came, remember, right? And so he exchanged the bread and the wine with him. And the book of Hebrews says that Melchizedek uh, so-called points towards Jesus, uh, the, the high priest of God. Or you can see the memorial meal as in later on, chapter 18, when Abraham hosted God and the angels to a meal. So either way, however you see it, there is a full exchange. All seven exchanges took place, uh, just like the ancient Near East practice of covenant-making. God made this covenant with Abraham. Now, it comes, when it comes to Jesus and us, we can also see all seven exchanges. How? First of all, in the exchange of weapons. When Jesus was whipped, crucified, he took on our weapons of destruction. Even weapons of mass destruction, I can, if I can say that. In exchange, God gives us his rod and his staff to defend us, to protect us, to fend for us. In the exchange of cloaks, Jesus took on our flesh. God himself took on human flesh. And when we believe in him, what we are looking forward to is the resurrection body of Christ. So there will be exchange of clothing as well in a very, very large spiritual meaning, not just this physical clothing anymore, but really the spiritual body. In the exchange of names, we are called Christians. We are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This formula is passed down to us from, the, from, the, from generation to generation, not frivolously. It's in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself is called Emmanuel, God with us. 
He takes on humanity, God with us. In the exchange of blood, surely we know, right? If you recall in Abraham's covenant, God was the one who passed through the carcasses. And of course, we know Jesus is the one who bled and died for us. But yet at the same time, Jesus did teach us as disciples to deny ourselves, take up the cross daily and follow him. So there is also this exchange, not so much literally of blood, although there are many martyrs for the church, right? Uh, especially in the 21st century, 20th and 21st century. But that's the call for us as Christians as well. If God really calls us to spill our bloods for Him, then that is our honour and our privilege to be part of this covenant. If not, we are still called to carry our crosses daily. In the exchange of curses and blessings, Jesus took on the curses, all the curses upon Himself. And through faith in Christ, we receive God's blessings. Our duty is to bless God through our worship. The psalmist repeatedly tells the people, Bless the Lord, O my soul. So we are called to bless God's name, right? Because all the curses are already taken by Jesus. What's left is to exchange blessings and pronounce blessings on each other. In the memorial exchange for us as Christians is the ritual of baptism. That's when we participate in Christ's death and resurrection. So if you remember Abraham's case, the memorial exchange was the removal of foreskin, right? The circumcision. But really it is a symbolic act of joining in covenant with a holy God. And so for us, we join to God through baptism. As sinful human beings, in order to be one with God, we must learn to deny ourselves, put off our flesh, let the old flesh die, and put on the new mind of Christ. Right? And we are a new creation. So as people of the new covenant, because Jesus has already spilled his blood, we are no longer asked to circumcise ourselves physically, our bodies, to cut ourselves in any way. But what we are told is to circumcise our hearts. Circumcise our hearts inwardly. right? To live behind the things of the flesh. And that's important for us. To let this old flesh die and put on the new nature of Christ. And finally, in the memorial meal, as you all probably already saw, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. That's why we don't celebrate Holy Communion alone. Because it's not just an individual thing. For us, it's always a communal faith. Because it's not even just us here at Amokyo Methodist Church. It is a sacrament for the whole body of Christ for every generation. So this is us together as the body of Christ partaking of it. So let me now summarize. Abraham's covenant with God conforms really to ancient Near East practice of cutting a covenant. While the principal party in this covenant is God, there is still a response that is required on our part. God does almost everything, really. But what is expected of us, just like we've seen in Abraham, is hesed. Believing loyalty and loving loyalty. That's what is demanded from us. When it comes to loving loyalty, we know this again very well. It's just a reminder to love God with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. When it comes to believing loyalty, we just believe God and then it will be given to us as righteousness. <coughs> and so when we confess no other names, no other gods, but Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, then it will be credited to us as righteousness. That's why salvation all along has always been to confess faith in God. It's so simple and yet can be so difficult, right? Huh? You mean I don't have to do anything? Yeah, you cannot do anything because you're supposed to be sleeping like Abraham. Only God will do everything. What is required on our part is to keep loving Him and to keep believing in Him. 
So let me close by exploring some practical expectations when it comes to loving loyalty and believing loyalty. Loving loyalty, for example. Sometimes people ask, you know, pastors, can I buy 4D? (laughs) On the flip side, you know, people ask differently, must I always tithe to church? Now, because all of us, most of us I see are adults, I will not give you the straightforward answer. Instead, I think we need to see all Christian commandments and teachings from a relational angle. Can you make a pledge of allegiance to two kings? Can you swear allegiance to two kings? Cannot. Can you make a covenant with two different people? You cannot. It can only be one. Can you marry two persons? Maybe some of you wish to your foolishness, but you cannot. So that's why Jesus says, you cannot love God and money. It's a relational angle. And so therefore, these questions you have to interpret for yourself. Can you buy 4D? Must you tithe? How much do you love God? You know, when I was uh, battling COVID, while I had no sense that my life was threatened in any way, my oximeter reading was always good, uh, 97, 98, 99, so I didn't really have to fight for, for air, so-called. But nonetheless, when you suffer, you always ponder about the meaning of life, correct or not? Right? So that's what suffering does. It makes us question really the purpose of life. And so in my very downset, I even asked myself, what will be written on my epitaph or my tombstone? Now we don't use tombstone or niche, whatever. What will be written there? And here's what I wish will be written. Maybe you can think for yourself. But for me, the highest honor and hope to be written there is either lover of God or friend of God. Not even good pastor, good friend, all these, you know, all these are important, sure. But probably the highest honor we can have is to be known as a friend of God, a lover of God. So what about you? What would you wish to be written about you right, on the day of your passing comes? That's loving loyalty, to profess no other loves but God himself. Believing loyalty. Uh, this testimony I heard uh, two weekends ago, two plus weekends ago, and uh, when I visited the wake, I heard this testimony of uh, the late mom. Her late mom you know, came to know the Lord very late in her life, but I suppose for some of us, we may also find this story familiar. But when she, when she converted this elderly lady, maybe, I don't know, 70, 80s, when she converted, uh, she truly converted. On one occasion, the daughters were craving for uh, handmade tang yuan, the Chinese dumpling that you eat, you know, in cert- certain occasions. And so this elderly lady said, no, I will not make them. Why? Because those of us who come from a non-Christian uh, background, you understand this. Because for some, for them, Tang Yuan is associated with prayers, offered to ancestors to at a temple. And so for her, it was very clear. I will never make Tang Yuan ever in my life, although the daughters want to eat it just for the taste, right? But for her, it is a very clear no. Because I have changed my allegiance, I no longer go to the to the temples to worship, I worship only God now, I will not make Tang Yuan for the rest of my life. When I heard that, I was like, wow, this is believing loyalty. Really clear believing loyalty. But perhaps one of my uh, all-time favorite Christian heroes is Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna. It's very easy, you know, to pledge allegiance to God when things are well and rosy. (laughs) Of course, you can say that, right? The true test of a Christian comes, you know, when life is tough, there is suffering and death comes knocking. Will we still profess faith, believing loyalty in God when there is death, the threat of death? And so Bishop Polycarp, he was 
burnt at the stake. He was pierced with a spear for refusing to burn incense to the Roman emperor. He refused to acknowledge that the emperor, Roman emperor was God. There's only one God. And so Bishop Polycarp was recorded as saying on the day of his death, 80 and 6 years have I served him, and he, God, has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And on his farewell, he said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour, so that in the company of martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. So loving loyalty, believing loyalty, that's what's demanded on our part. We don't have to do any work of salvation, nothing. Simply to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to keep believing Him, even and especially when times are tough. Come, let us pray. Lord, as we examine once again the covenant you made Abraham, we see how much grace you have shown because, Lord, you have taken on the full terms of the covenant. You are Abraham's reward. You are his shield. You are the one who walk among the pieces. You have done everything. And all that is required for us is to believe in you, just as Abraham did. And so for those of us, in case there are some of us here who do not yet know Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity. You say, I want to put my faith, I want to believe in you, God, because you love me and you died for me. And if you want to believe in Jesus for the very first time in your life, I want to give an invitation. If that's you, can I just invite you to raise your hands and just pray with you. Okay, let's continue praying. And so, Lord, we are thankful once again for all that you have done for us. We pray, Holy Spirit, empower us to always love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to believe you, no matter what the circumstances may be around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.